One summer's night in 1946, over a thousand European Jews waited silently on an Italian beach to board a secret ship. They had survived the atrocities of the Holocaust and now they were ready to risk everything again for a new life. The People on the Beach by Rosie Whitehouse follows those secret passengers and reveals the extraordinary stories, some told for the very first time. Welcome to Afterwards. I am Angad Singh Chowdhury, co-founder of Quilt.ai, here talking today with Rosie Whitehouse, an author and journalist specializing in Jewish life. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the forgotten story of the people on the beach, how they fled Europe, and why, and the way in which the Holocaust is remembered today. Welcome to the Hearst podcast, Rosie. Hello, it's nice to be on it. It's a very powerful book, and it would be wonderful if we could walk our listeners through how you came across the idea of the people on the beach. What was its genesis and what clued you into it? Well, I'm a freelance journalist. So as a freelance journalist, I have lots of hats that I take on and off. And as well as being a specialist in Jewish life after the Holocaust, I'm also a travel writer. And I'm extremely lucky because one of my patches is the Italian Riviera. And I'm the author of a guidebook to Liguria. And I was updating my guidebook and I stumbled across a newspaper cutting from 1946 that related to the port of Savona. And it described how over a thousand Holocaust survivors arrived on a moonlit beach to board a ship that had sailed from New York and was going to take them to the Palestine Mandate, which was then controlled by the British. And they were going to try and smash through the Royal Naval Blockade of Palestine. I thought this was an absolutely extraordinary story. So I asked around of people I know, and particularly people who work in shipping in Liguria. Nobody knew anything about the story. And my first reaction was, how did a thousand people know a boat was coming in the middle of the night from New York? And how did they get to a beach in northern Italy? And who were they and what were their stories? So I set out to try to identify who these people were. And that was actually really the beginning of what is a detective story. Because as I think we all know that when you see thousands of refugees fleeing disaster, There aren't people there writing down their names. And there are certainly not people handing out tickets to what are illegal immigrant ships. But fortunately for me, and unfortunately for the people on the beach, when they did try to smash through the Royal Naval Blockade of Palestine, the ship was boarded by British Marines, and they were arrested and taken to a detention camp south of Haifa. And there, their names were recorded. Their name was given their date of birth, and their place of birth, their country. Once I had these 1,300 names, I was able to begin to identify them. And for me, it was a really wonderful moment where things came together 
technologically and still we had survivors alive who can tell their stories because if I tried to do this 10, 15 years ago, there wouldn't have been the context that you could try to search for people using Google Translate, using online archives, using survivors' accounts from the past. These things just did not exist before. And so it was kind of like a perfect storm that came together through which I was able to find out their stories. So starting from this uh, list, could you walk our readers through maybe one or two examples of how you used uh, technology? Was it just Google, but also Facebook and other databases to find individuals? Yes. Well, there was one gentleman that I searched for for at least 12 months, and I was determined to find him. He was not only one of the younger people who sailed on this boat, but he was born in a town which is really crucial in the story of the Jewish exodus from Eastern Europe. It was then a place called Rovna, and it's today it's called Rivna, and that town is in Western Ukraine. So in fact, This story has a sort of contemporary significance, which uh, it obviously did not have when I was hunting for this gentleman, whose name is Yitzhak Kaplan. Now, I tried to find him doing the normal routes by just putting Yitzhak Kaplan Holocaust into the search engine, and nothing came up. So I then translated his name into Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew. And I began to search in Hebrew for this gentleman. And eventually up popped a newspaper from Haifa in which he was pictured next to his granddaughter who was wearing an Israeli army uniform and had clearly done something to win an award. And uh, I realised that she was going to be the portal through which I would be able to contact him. So I began to search for her on Facebook and up on my computer screen, I had the picture from the newspaper and then I had all varying young ladies who seemed to match her profile. And eventually I I put the two pictures together and it was click. I knew that was her. So I sent her a messenger message. A few days later, I got a WhatsApp from her uncle. And eventually I went to Haifa and I met uh, Yitzhak Kaplan and uh, His story runs through the people on the beach from the beginning of the exodus from what was then Poland, right the way through to the dramas of a hunger strike in in the Italian port of La Spezia, and then the actual drama of the journey to the Palestine Mandate. If you interview a Holocaust survivor, you've got to know more about it than they do in order to be able to ask them the right questions and to press them a little bit. Quite often, survivors, when I talk to them, they say, it's a bit like the police have come to visit because I sit them down and I say, where were you on this day? What did you do? Rather than, in, in many ways, letting them lead the conversation, which I think is a way that people tend to approach them because they're quite nervous about the story. So there's a lot to unpack there. But why don't we talk about what you said towards the end? about interviewing survivors and how people are often nervous and it sounds like a police interrogation when you come overtly prepared. What are the dynamics of a conversation like that? How do they play out? One thing is that I met these people in their homes. I talked to them over coffee, over biscuits and cakes in their everyday environment because they are, after all, just ordinary people. And that's why the book is not called The Jews on the Beach, it's called The People on the Beach. And they're all radically different and they all had very different experiences and they reacted in very different ways because uh, we all react to to everything in a a slightly different manner. I think that was very important because it brought about a, a normality 
to the conversation. My name is Rosie Whitehouse. And when I walk in, the very first thing that survivors say to me is Whitehouse. Now, that's not a Jewish name. Why do you want to hear my story? And I then start by saying to them, well, actually, my married name is Judah and my husband is Jewish. And they go, ah, that's okay then. Then you feel like if I hadn't been able to say that, how would they have reacted differently to me? And what would they have said? And then you slowly begin to step over other hurdles because we have a Holocaust backstory in our family. And when I mention that, they go, ah, and they open up a little bit more. And then with one instant for another gentleman who came from Western Ukraine, not Yitzhak Kaplan, another gentleman, and he, I'd been talking to him for about six to seven hours on and off over the phone. And then I eventually came to his house and he had asked me about how much I knew about Western Ukraine. And I said, well, I know a lot about Ukraine because uh, my husband's a reporter and he's been covering the crisis in Ukraine since 2008. And actually, as we speak now, he's on the front line uh, in Ukraine. And when I told the gentleman this, he said, ah, okay, I've been thinking about it. And I'm going to tell you something I don't tell people because when I have mentioned it to people, Here in Israel, he said, people say, oh, you're an idiot. You're not telling me the truth. And he proceeded to tell me a story about how he had been hidden by a Ukrainian nationalist who was a follower of Stepan Bandera and that she had hidden him and his mother for over a year in a cupboard. He said that most people laugh at him when he says the story and says he's making it up. But it was absolutely true. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, he went to Ukraine, he said, literally with suitcases of money to give her to say thank you for what she had done. And he discovered that she had been killed in a shootout with the NKVD in the late 1940s. So he was never able to say thank you. But it was an extraordinary story. And it's a, I always have this feeling when you're talking to somebody that you there are still depths that you can go to but I just don't have the key to open those doors but certainly I had the key to this man's story. Can we take a few steps back and talk about and maybe give our listeners some information and anecdotes about the great exodus from Poland and the hunger strike and all the way to Haifa? What did the journey look like? Well let's go back to the story of Yitzhak Kaplan because I think he really illustrates the entire story. Because Rovna, now Rivna in Western Ukraine, was then in Poland. It was the first major town in Poland to be liberated by the Red Army. And it was liberated in February of 1944. Kaplan had escaped with his family to the Soviet Union. His sister had stayed behind with her children in Rovna because she hoped that her husband, who'd been conscripted into the Polish army, would come back. Now, she ended up in the death pits outside the city of Rivna. I think we've all heard of Baba Yar, the huge uh, death pit on the edge of the city of Kiev. But the death pits outside Rivna are called the second Baba Yar. 23,000 people uh, were murdered there. It's a very horrible story because in this particular case, they separated the children from the parents and they killed the children in a separate grave. Now, I believed that was enough to explain why Kaplan had decided 
to leave the city and seek a new life elsewhere. And when I went to meet him, I was incredibly surprised to discover that that was not actually the case. When he returned, his father died while they were in exile in the Soviet Union, and he returned with his mother and his sister, who had married a partisan. Now, that partisan had been one of those fighters with the Red Army who had liberated Rovna. Now, they believed that they could start a new life in Rovna. Although they lived in a small village outside, uh, it was not safe to return to their village because of uh, Ukrainian nationalists who lived in the village that were threatening them and had burned their house to the ground. They believed that in the city of Rivna, which was primarily Polish, that they could start a new life. And so did many, many other survivors. And Rivna became a centre where the Jewish survivors, the partisans in particular, began to gather in those survivors, particularly the hidden children. The partisans played a crucial role in firstly tidying up the massacre site, putting a memorial and helping the survivors. And soon this story of Jews helping Jews got back to Moscow. Now, at this point, Stalin was turning increasingly anti-Semitic. And this story went down really badly in Moscow. And the partisans were soon tipped off that if they stayed in Rivna, building a new Jewish community, that they were likely to find themselves in Siberia. And they were on a collision course with Stalin. And that is the main reason that the partisans decided that they had to lead the people out and take them into central and western Poland, where they would be more secure. Now, this is August 1944. Now, in August 1944, the massacre of Hungarian Jewry was going full pelt at Auschwitz. The battles um, to liberate Poland were going all guns blazing. These people decided that they were going to flee through a war zone. It shows just how desperate they were to leave. And that was firstly the extraordinary revelation of Kaplan's story to me. And you see this reflected in the stories of many of the people who ended up on the beach who had, who fled from uh, Vilnius in Lithuania and came down through Poland looking for a new life because life was unsustainable. Jewish life was unsustainable in Stalin's Russia. As they travelled onwards, they eventually began to find their way down into Austria and into Germany, where the second part of the story of the people on the beach really began, because it was in the American-occupied zone of Bavaria that a Jewish revival happened. I was astounded to discover this story and to find the story of one very remarkable young American rabbi who who actually led the people forward and gave them the... Um, the wherewithal to literally stand up and shake themselves down and hold their heads high. Tell us more about that American rabbi. Well, Rabbi Abraham Klausner was 30 years old when he was sent to Dachau with the American army. He was an army chaplain. He was very disappointed, actually, to be sent to Dachau just after the liberation because uh, he wanted to go to the Far East where, the, where all the action was. But when he arrived in Dachau, he walked into one of the barracks and he was completely overwhelmed by what he saw. And he decided that he would help the people. Klausner always called them the people. And I think that it's really important to use this phrase, not always to get stuck with survivors, because 
they had immediately survived, but surviving is a process that takes decades. You can really only call someone a survivor by the time they get to come to retirement, really, I think, that when they, they have survived their life. And Klausner decided first that he would get them to write down their names, who they were. Now, one of the extraordinary stories that I discovered in writing this book is a story of lists. At the end of the Second World War, the Jews made lists, not of those people who were dead, as you normally do after a major war, but lists of people who had survived. Now, the first lists were even made on the back of a board game. But Klausner's list was the very first official list that was made. He actually had it printed in a town called Landsberg, which is actually where Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. He was certainly aware of the historical irony of having this list printed there. And this list was then circulated around the world. And people then began to contact relatives and begin to look for people as a process that well, this still goes on, really. I mean, I, I still meet people today who are looking for relatives. It's extraordinary. You wouldn't believe that. But in that way, the Holocaust is living history. But Klausner never spoon fed anybody. And he helped the people to firstly reclaim their names because the Nazis had tried to dehumanise the Jews by even taking their names away from them and giving them numbers in their place. Now, once that was done, Klausner began to fight for their rights because the uh, people in the displaced persons camps were initially clumped together by uh, the British and the Americans by nationality. So you could actually be a Jewish person from, uh, let's say, Western Ukraine, and you could find yourself in the same displaced persons camp as somebody who'd actually been working for the Nazis. This was an intolerable situation. And Klausner argued that Jewish survivors should be cared for in separate displaced persons camps. Now, this is absolutely dramatic development. When the Americans say, yes, the American authorities give the seal of approval to this, they actually give the seal of approval to recognising the Jews as a nation. It's an absolutely crucial moment in Jewish history and why this story had gone untold until now, I find completely extraordinary. But that is what happened. And within these Jewish displaced persons camps, there was an incredible revival of Jewish culture, of theatre, of religion, of newspapers and, of course, of Zionism. And the displaced people's camps became a hotbed of agitation against the British because the British in 1939, before the outbreak of war, had imposed very strict restrictions on Jewish immigration to the Palestine mandate, which was at this point part of the British Empire. Now, when the war came to an end, the Labour Party had promised on the hustings that they would repeal this white paper. Now, when they took power in August of 1945, they did not do so. The white paper remained in place. So those people who were in the displaced persons camps in Germany, they could not automatically go and settle in Palestine. Now, many of the other doors of the world were closed to them. It was extremely difficult to get a permit to settle in America and priority was given to uh, young survivors who were taken out to Sweden and Switzerland and France and here to the UK. But many people sat festering in these displaced persons camps right through into the 1950s because of the uh, British policy of restricting immigration to Palestine. I want to take us back to what you started with 
which was the newspaper article that you found. You'd made the remark that how did anybody know that there was a ship coming at this time and at this location and that there was passage available in that ship back in the day without internet and telephones and, you know, right after the war? How did they know? Well, the story of the people on the beach breaks down into three clear sections. Firstly, the exodus from Eastern Europe, which was led by the partisans. Secondly, the story of what happened in the American zone of occupied Germany and Austria, where there was this extraordinary revival of Jewish culture and Zionism. And thirdly, is the story of what happened in Italy. Towards the end of the war, the Jewish brigade, who were part of the British army, who had been recruited in Palestine and was made up of Jewish soldiers, had been deployed in the invasion of Italy. And they had fought their way up through Italy, giving the the German troops uh, the shock of their lives as they leapt into the trenches with stars of David on their sleeves, uh, shouting at them in, in Yiddish and German. The British Army were aware that they were somewhat a loose cannon, which could actually cause problems. So they decided to deploy them in the northeastern corner of Italy, where they thought they'd be out of the way and wouldn't cause any trouble. If you know your geography of Italy, the northeastern corner of Italy borders with Austria and Slovenia. The Jewish Brigade were placed by the British Army by mistake in the most perfect place to help the survivors. And although it was against army regulations, they went AWOL and they drove the British army trucks over the border into Austria, right up into Poland, into Bavaria, where they met with Rabbi Klausner and they began to gather together survivors that they were going to take into Italy. Now, when they arrived in Italy... Those survivors then became part of the Jewish underground movement, which had been set up by the Jewish agency. Now, the Jewish agency were the organisation, was the main controlling Jewish organisation within the Palestine mandate. And as the war had come to an end, they had sent emissaries into Europe to set up an underground network to help the survivors. And in Italy, this network was extensive because of the nature of, again, Italian geography. There are plenty of ports, Mediterranean ports. This is where the illegal immigrant ships primarily sailed from. And so when the Jewish Brigade took the survivors into Italy, they then cared for them in Italy, where the Italians gave an enormous positive response uh, to the survivors, as uh, over 70,000 of them flooded in over the Alps. And from there, they selected people that were suitable to take on these illegal immigrant ships. Now, I use the word selected because it's very important to understand this, is that you couldn't just walk up and get on this ship. The people who were standing on the beach had been told that this boat was coming. They had been driven by the Jewish underground to the beach. Many of them had been fighting and pushing to get onto this boat, but it was actually the Jewish underground who selected it. They didn't actually give you a ticket, but they put you on the truck, again, a British army truck, ironically, which drove you to the beach. And it was them who had manned the ships, who had brought the ship in the first place in New York and and sailed it to the Italian Riviera. We all have our ideas of the Holocaust and then someone does a lot of research into it and obviously perceptions change and perspectives change 
What for you was the biggest perspective shift after you finished writing the book? Well, the thing that really surprised me all along was that this story had not been told. And at certain points when I was hearing survivors telling me the story, I was reading accounts, I began to think I was going mad because I was thinking, this is such an incredible story. Why has nobody else written this down? And why has this British role been literally brushed under the carpet? Why does nobody talk about it? Why don't we talk about it here? Why don't we tell children in schools about this aspect of the British Empire history. Why is this so silent? And then I began to discover nobody talked about it in Israel either. And this was an unknown story in Israel. I began to realise that there was this extraordinary story of what happened to the Jews between the end of the Holocaust and the founding of the State of Israel. And if we don't tell that story correctly, and lots of it are very difficult to swallow for the British, for the Israelis, because there are lots of questions about the reaction of the Jews who were at that time living in Palestine to the survivors. There are lots of uncomfortable aspects to this story. If we don't tell that story and make sure that people are aware of it, myths can grow up around this story, which are dangerous and do not help the political situation in the Middle East today. It is better to always have the facts in front of you when you're trying to draw up a solution to something which has later gone wrong. What do you think we haven't learned as a people from what happened uh, in the Holocaust? I think the danger about the way that we remember the Holocaust is that even just calling it the Holocaust is is very misleading because it's really important that it's taught in schools because this genocide was a transnational genocide. That's what makes it totally unique. Because of the nature of it, it was incredibly nuanced. So what was happening, uh, the persecution of the Jews in France was radically different from the persecution of the Jews in Poland. And so the ergo was their reaction to what had happened to them afterwards. I think that by the fact that we become very tunnel visioned about the way we tell the story, everything is told through Auschwitz. Auschwitz is, is so iconic now that you can recognise the outline of the gate without ever having been to Auschwitz and actually seen it. Much of Holocaust education centres on, on the death camps, but it centres on Auschwitz. And it overlooks many other nuanced stories. I mean, for example, one there were hundreds of people who sailed on my illegal immigrant ship who came from Romania. And I was very keen to tell their story. Because what happened in Transdenistria during the Holocaust is a forgotten story. Most people don't know anything about it. But unfortunately, I was unable to track any of those people down, largely because for some reason, when they arrived in, in Israel, their names were suddenly turned into Slavic names. So it made it impossible to search for them. For example, Abramovici became Abramovich for some reason. And so even my account suffers from these problems that you couldn't tell the whole story. So the Romanian story remains untold. Just closing up, if you are comfortable speaking about what you are working on now, that would be really lovely to hear. Is there other research projects or other problems that you're trying to investigate right now? Well, actually, I'm working on been working on two projects. The first one is actually I realised talking to survivors, and when you sit and and they tell their stories to me, there's a family member there who's always surprised by something that's being said because they haven't they didn't know about it or they never pressed their 
parent or their grandparent to tell their story because it's very different for an outsider journalist to go in and ask somebody questions and it is a family member you have you have all the family dynamics and not wanting to hurt somebody and and being nervous yourself um, about what you might discover and I then realized that it was time to turn the tables on our own family I spent much of the last two years researching and telling the story of my husband's family in France during the Holocaust. And uh, I discovered an incredible story of uh, Jewish resistance and a Jewish partisan movement, which I had no idea existed before. I think another untold story of of the Holocaust. So uh, I've just come to the end of researching that project. I also work here in the UK for a group called the 45 Aid Society. Now, they represent the survivors and their families who were brought here between 1945 and 1948 as child survivors. Over 700 children were brought to the UK and uh, they were cared for here by an organisation called the Central British Fund, who had organised a kinder transport. Their story is a the last episode of Kinder Transport. I work with them and have been researching their story because, again, they found that even they themselves didn't completely understand what had happened and and who they were when uh, they asked me to find out where the children who came to to Britain were cared for and what what, uh, homes and hostels they were looked after. I said, "Okay, well, give me the list of their names. And they said, we don't have one. So I had to put together the definitive list of their names to discover who were actually given these visas by the British government. So it's incredible what is not told and what is not known about this story, even by the people who lived through it themselves. Thank you to Rosie Whitehouse for taking part in this episode. You can buy People on the Beach now from the Hearst Publishers website. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers and Quilt.ai at QuiltAI underscore on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to the email updates at HearstPublishers.com. I'm Angad Singh Chowdhury. Thank you for listening and follow me on Twitter at Angad Singh.